one of the more frequent criticisms of inside sales, the way that I think the preponderance of SaaS companies practice it, is just more, right? We do more as opposed to do better. More content, more channels, more messages, more apps, more everything, more overwhelm, which means not only for your customers, but if you're a sales leader, this is also true your sales people, more confusion, more overwhelm, and more decision paralysis. I think the key for success today in the future, it's really this word of focus. And there's many ways you can do this. That's Aaron Ross. He's talking about the value of specialization in sales. Aaron's my guest on the show today, and we're going to dig into the importance of specialized sales roles. We're going to talk about key outbound metrics for sales managers, explore those circumstances where it makes sense for SDR prospectors to be paid as much as AE sellers, and what to do about chronically low close rates in B2B sales. Aaron Ross is the co-author, along with Mary Lou Tyler, of the book titled Predictable Revenue. Turn your business into a sales machine with the $100 million best practices of Salesforce.com. It's become the playbook for many companies implementing an inside sales-driven, repeatable revenue model. Aaron is also father to a large family of nine kids. Now, the first time he was on the show, he had to hide in a closet from his kids to find a quiet place to record in what you'd reasonably expect would be a hectic home. Aaron and his family recently picked up stakes and relocated from the sunny shores of L.A., to the decidedly less sunny Edinburgh, Scotland. Aaron, how you doing? Hey, Andy. I'm, I'm uh, well enough, I suppose, especially with all the drama out there. Yeah, yeah. we're trying to spend too much time talking about it, but, but uh, it's just a fact of life. We don't know how long it's going to last. And, and you're looking at it from a very different vantage point because you're now living in Edinburgh, Scotland. Yeah, yeah moved here a couple months ago. Just an adventure? Yep. Family adventure. We loved it here. Been in here vacations a lot, and we wanted to move out of Los Angeles, which is where we lived for ten years. Right, and uh, just decided to bite the bullet and move to where we want to be. So we're in Edinburgh. I love it. It's an amazing city. It's not too big, not too small. You can walk everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. I was going to say, don't, what, have, don't have a car. What is about Edinburgh? I mean, I've heard. It's, I've unfortunately I've never been to Edinburgh, but it's it's, it's just you can really walk everywhere. It's there's so many beautiful little streets and shops and like old stone houses so uh and the and weather the weather's Scotland a big, is that, big yeah, contrast yeah, weather from is not so yeah yeah we of course we moved here in january so right basically in the worst part of winter january february so right. now it's only getting better it's starting to get sunny and a little warmer which still isn't warm by los angeles standards but i mean no. the city makes up for it so really really enjoying it here interesting so what's what impacts yeah. not that having on your business if any um so again, sort of the early stages, sure. I'm not sure. I think like a lot of them, so there's a lot of businesses out there. Like there's these three types, you know, the first is our companies that are basically going to go out of business or, or be severely damaged because of like, and like travel or restaurants. And right. Things, um, and then there's companies that are going to have a huge influx and boom, like zoom, a lot mm. of virtual teleconferencing, Amazon. Sure. Uh, and then there's probably most companies that are like, well, it could go kind of either way, depending on what we do. And our company, predictablerevenue.com, mm-hmm. fall into that. So like, I think a lot of people will lose some clients because they're going to struggle. We'll probably get some new clients that are better, you know, better positioned. It's going to be just a lot of change. And I think like a lot of people, the key is to kind of stay calm, 
be aware of all the challenges. Like everyone, there's a lot of people who are going to have cash flow problems. Um, we probably will as well in terms of like turning through different company, you know, customers and bring mm-hmm. out new ones and should we reposition our offerings and kind of adapting to the new climate because we don't know how long it'll last. And I think that every time, you know, I'm getting older there now. Like, no, you'll be 50 in a couple of years. Oh, yeah, and in a, in uh, a couple of years. <laughs> yep. But it's at the point where I've seen, I think it's a lot easier for me to be calm in the sense of knowing that in the past, whether it was this company or prior companies, and I've had them fail and we're in sales mm-hmm. and so on, um, that it's the, the times that tend to catapult you towards the kind of the success you want in one way or another. Sure. So in some ways that might be you're in a, a company or in some situation where it's not a good fit and it's going to force you to get out of that, right? The company might close or you get fired. Like there's just not a good fit there. Right. Um, you're going to force into something you might've been resisting or it might force you to reposition yourself or your company, and what you do to be better fit. But people, a lot of people come out of this better for it. Um, you know, of course there's going to be a lot of challenges just socially and families. I mean, there's people who are going to be like, there's a lot of you know, sickness effects literally on people's lives, right? but business wise, um, you know, I think again, this is one of these times where when people look back in a few months or a few years, be like, yeah, that I really had a lot of immense growth because of that, whether it was felt good at the time or not. Mm-hmm. Like I look back again to the times I learned the most when I had a divorce and when I had a business fail yep. times, yep. incredibly painful. I hope I actually, of course I don't want to go through those types of things again. I don't expect to, but it's more sometimes the things that feel the most scary and painful. If you, um, I want to say embrace, but you kind of run towards them to at least deal with them mm-hmm. in some way. And you put it like for me, a lot of it's just navigating step by step, like day by day, moment by moment. At some point, you come out the other side. You're like, oh, okay, yeah, I made it, and uh, I'm better for it. I think then that's where we're gonna. A lot of businesses, whether they know it or not, are gonna go through this yeah. that way. Yeah, I'm not absolutely. I think that that's a great point. It's it's. Uh, you said you've been through some difficult times in the past, and yeah, and perhaps the biggest lesson you learned is you got through it. Got through it, and I'm better for it. Yeah. So unfortunately, that we we grow. Comfort is an enemy of of growth. Yep. Comfort doesn't mean ease; it just means like habits. And these are the kinds of times that really they force us to confront prior habits that we may or may not need to change. Yeah, well, I mean, it's sort of interesting. We're obviously one of the topics we want to talk about is is a book you and Mary Lou wrote, "Predictable Revenue," which mm-hmm. um, you know, sort of the the playbook for many companies doing inside sales yep. and by extension, remote selling these days. Um, yeah. So, yeah, you sort of. We're in the sweet spot before, but really in the sweet spot now. So, for people maybe have been, <laughs> uh, maybe aren't in the SaaS business, where you know your book is most often put to use, is is explain what predictable revenue was about and and how companies are using it. Yeah, well, I think um, there are a lot of companies in the SaaS and software businesses that have heard of and used the book Predictable Revenue, but really it's a book for anyone who has salespeople. I just think that the SaaS companies tend, and a lot of technology companies tend to be, to be the most aggressive at changing habits and trying new things in order to grow faster. They're more willing to throw out conventional practices and try new things, but really it's for any company. But yeah, that book, Predictable Revenue, has been out since 2011, 
which is when I got married. Mm-hmm. So again, had a family, had to grow the business, the book out. Uh, so it's like eight, coming on, coming on nine years this year. Yeah. And, uh, interesting. A lot of the ideas are basically still tr- as true as ever sense of one of the key ideas and standard. And I'd say like Silicon Valley type companies now, so you have specialized in salespeople, right. but still really quite uncommon, actually. Specialized in salespeople, same idea. If you had a sports team, a soccer team, you know, you don't tell all your people, all your players, everyone do attack and everyone do defense. You have a specialist like attackers and defenders and goal mm-hmm. and so on. And in sales, we still don't, it's still uncommon to do that, which you have prospectors who prospect, closers who close, account management and so on. Um, and when you do that, you can enable people like prospectors to be dedicated at being great at things like outbound prospecting people who are doing fewer things better and outbound prospecting of course is something that uh the team i created at salesforce.com that system help them grow faster mm-hmm. uh, almost double how fast they're growing in certain markets and that is something that and if you can have a system like that to create predictable lead generation then you'll be able to create predictable revenue but with outbound, unless you have people dedicated to it, just not going to work well. So a lot of these principles still are true. What happens is uh, the markets get busier. I think like outbound, if we just take outbound to this area, and right. outbound has been a hot area for a while. Right? Inbound was really hot for a long time. It still is. I mean, like it's never going to go away. No, not this way. But I feel like outbound kind of follows inbound because inbound mat- grew and matured faster earlier. In the sense of content marketing and like um, SEO and kind of all these forms of, of marketing to drive leads to your website. And inbound, what happens is the world gets cluttered. You, it all still works. It just, you have to do that to be better. You know, John Miller, the founder, mm-hmm. one of the founders or co founders of Marketo, said, yeah. yeah, now now CEO, founder of Engageo. Right said uh, 10 years ago in Marketo, he could put up a blog post and rank on the first page of Google for keywords in the same day, right? And today with Engageo, he's been trying for three years or four years to be on the first, you know, highly ranked for terms like account-based marketing, and he can't. So like outbound, the same thing, more people are doing outbound, it works, it still works, but you just have to be better, sort of. And this is really the future of the, the trend. More content, more channels, more... Uh, messages, more apps, more everything, more overwhelm, which means not only for your customers, but if you're a sales leader, this is also true of your sales people, more confusion, right. more overwhelm, and more decision paralysis. So I think the key, if there's really like one key for fe- for success today in the future, it's really this word of focus. And there's many ways you can do this. So that is really, I think, the essence of what it's going to take to be successful in growing sales or companies, basically, sales and marketing right. today and in the future. Well, I mean, you use the term better, right? We've got to be, do better. Got to do better. That. And so... More insightful, more targeted. Yeah, I want to, I want to dig into that because yeah. you know, one of the more frequent criticisms of inside sales, the way that... I think the preponderance of SaaS companies practice it is just more, right? We do more as opposed to do better. As, mm-hmm. as opposed to saying, look, if we learn how to do it better, we can do more better, but we're just going to do more right now. So yeah. how, 
How do we break that cycle? Because as you said, people are getting overwhelmed. Outbound is still you know, essential part of developing new leads, new business. Um, how do we get people to really focus more on the, <laughs> on the better? I mean, I've had a conversation with, yeah. the C, with a CRO of a big brand name SaaS company and was talking about what his growth plans were. And it was just like, all oh, just we're just going to beat the crap out of the top of the funnel. We're just going to throw stuff at it. We're so good at, yeah. at our lean machine. I'm like, well, have you ever focused like, on improving your, you know, the quality of the leads and improving your win rate, you know, all these things? No. Do we just do enough? We're just playing a game of chance at this point. If we just throw enough of it, we know we're going to get a certain percentage of it. Just throw and it, it seemed, in. Right. And it seems like that you know, turning sales into a game of chance attitude has taken hold. Is How do we break that cycle? Yeah. Well, it's always going to be there in some way, but I feel like that's why a lot of uh, my content and so not so much predictable revenue, but I think especially the newer stuff. So there's a book I did with a guy named Jason Lemkin, yep. founder of Saster. It's called the book is called From Impossible to Inevitable. It's actually was ranked one of the top 10 startup books of all time. And there's like a new ebook. I, you know, again, the stuff I feel like I'm working on today uh, the, it's like a workshop and ebook, you know, a simple sure. thing is called outbound sales mistakes, even smart leaders make. Um, but like these are all around focusing on the quality side, not just quantity, because I think every, everyone's default is to quantity. Mm-hmm. Right. So to me, it's like education and trying to get people to look a little bit more top down. So for example, when we talk about, um, case studies with outbound funnels and kind of the right metrics, you know, you do want the quantity metrics in there, but sure. I tend to focus things on here are the metrics you're missing, like the quality metrics. So give us here's, an example of what those are. Uh, so here's one example. This is one of these, you know, common uh, top seven kind of mistakes, mm-hmm. outbound sales mistakes in a outbound funnel. Now, the thing with outbound is that there is probably the most subjectivity in this funnel as in around the entire sales stack mm-hmm. and marketing stack. Because you have oftentimes a lot of um, newer people doing appointment setting, and you've got a lot of salespeople receiving those appointments, and they don't often have enough training consistency around what actually counts as qualified. Right. Right. And and that includes the salespeople. And then this just happens. And then what nobody does, or it's so rare, is they need an audit check to review all these outbound appointments or appointments set by outbound SDRs. So the mm-hmm. term is often, I say outbound SDR, sure. outbound BDR, it's the right. prospector. So here's all the, here's all the appointments that are set, but here's all the kind of, um, first we, we don't care about appointments set or even appointments held. It's really, okay, appointments held that were accepted and, qu- and turned into qualified opportunities right. by the sales team. And then of all those that were qualified by the sales team or accepted reviewing all those. So these are sort of all the commissionable events for the prospectors reviewing every single one for consistency and kind of completeness and consistency means, was it actually qualified according to the criteria? And you do need some criteria. Uh, Were the notes in there? Did the salesperson actually talk to them on the phone? Because a lot of salespeople will think, ah, you know, my prospectors really weren't working hard. I'll just, I'll flip them. I'll just do them a favor. Mm Mm-hmm which is deadly. Do, do them a favor by going through with the demo, even though they're not qualified. Yeah, exactly. Or right. even just by kind of qualifying over email or just, 
it doesn't happen terribly often. It's enough that you have to again check every opportunity that's been accepted for consistency for, you know, was it actually outbound according to the rules of attribution? And mm-hmm. you need rules of attribution sure. to say, was this inbound? Was this outbound? Um, was it uh, actually outbound? Was it actually qualified? And is it basically consistently done by the way we need them entered in the CRM and the notes and so on? But what you find is because there's so much, it just takes constant coaching in, in practice and, and reminding of everybody. The consistency is really hard at that step of the funnel. So you do need that kind of check. If you don't have that, what you have is a whole bunch of inconsistent qualified opportunities. So you don't have accurate sense of the amount of actual qualified opportunities entering your sales pipeline through the outbound channel. So you don't really know what's working. And when you have this situation, like especially now, um, what's going to happen is you when you actually look at your funnel, at your pipeline, the out, especially the outbound sourced one, right. it's going to be quite very inaccurate. And so if you thought you had $10 million in pipeline, there might only be 6 million. Or again, if you dig into it and you got, well, hey, $10 million of outbound pipeline. Um, and you dig into it and you realize, wow, actually half of that 5 million came from actually inbound sources. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of, it's like driving a car and you realize, oh, my speedometer is wrong. I just got pulled over by the police because I had no idea or my map system is wrong. So I don't right. know where I am. So what's and that? Especially what's that? these times you... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, just you need to have the truth of your pipeline and truth in order to make effective decisions. You have to sort of have the truth, like the, you know, what's my actual pipeline and what's actually sourced it, so I know what's working, so I know how to best adjust and in to invest. Where am I going to grow? So, what does that consistency metric look like, for instance? Um. So, really, what that means that metric is. So a common might be comping outbound SDRs on the number of held meetings. Mm-hmm. So the actual different metric would be comping them on sales accept. We what do they call it? Sales accepted leads or sales qualified, qualified opportunities, opportunities or right. whatever. Right? There's you know there's so many. The salesperson has held another call with them, and it could be a demo. You know, there's all kinds of discovery call mm-hmm. demo. Salesperson talked to them by phone. They requalified, it, qualified, and accepted it as they're going to take it. So that could sometimes, for if you're doing more account-based or enterprise companies, could take three or four meetings. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So it may not be yeah. So it's the number of sales accepted opportunities. So we use sales accepted leads. I'll stick to that. Sales accepted leads, and again, those have to be all checked for consistency by a manager or some sort of third party in the company to make sure they're all. Kosher. And not because people would necessarily like cheat, although they might push the boundaries. It's just, mm-hmm. they're all, it's a lots of coachable moments because most people, they just don't know. They get it wrong. They don't put the right notes in. Salesperson qual- accepts it or rejects it unfairly. Um, there's just, there's a lot of coaching that needs to go into this to get a consistency in terms of the, the pipeline being generated. And if you don't have consistency, you don't have predictability. So that's one talks of the quality. It's right. really the quality of the work. Now there's many other types of quality and focus, right? This is the focus on which customers are the right ones, right? That quality, fewer, better customers. There's a focus on specialization works because um, salespeople can focus on doing fewer things better. So that quality of their work can be better because they can, they don't have to be juggling 20 different things. And lastly, one of, in the impossible book, um, you know, again, there's a whole section on like doubling your deal size. 
this idea of it's a lot easier to grow revenue by growing your deal sizes mm-hmm. than it is by just getting more customers, which you can do, especially through outbound, because you can target bigger opportunities. Right. And, you know, can you can, as part of this is how do you find companies that have bigger deal sizes and how would you potentially restructure or sort of propose bigger deal sizes? But that's really one of the best and easiest ways to grow revenue. Just double your deal size. So it's like fewer, bigger, better customers. It's usually healthier for most businesses. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing um, more companies sort of saying, well, gosh, we really need to have more seniority in the SDR role. Um, Especially if we're doing bigger deals, and primarily in the big, more complex enterprise sale. Um, interested in what you're seeing about that, because I've talked with several, and I've seen some, uh, you know, companies hiring SDRs now that were AEs, you know, coming back into this sort of prospecting team role with the yeah. AE to penetrate big accounts. Yeah, well, I did an interesting webinar with a guy named Colin Cadmus from Aircall, VP of Sales there, and his the the webinar is called "The SDR Model Is Broken." Mm-hmm. Which again is kind of a bit of a, of course, a dramatic statement, right. but his, um, I'll say, proposition hypothesis is that this is time for SDRs to have a parallel career track to salespeople and be paid basically equivalently, um, treated the same way, have longer tenures, more experience, and so mm-hmm. on. I agree. And yeah, and I think where we came out was for it depends kind of on the segment of the market. Right. So yeah, I think uh, he's in a very comp- hyper-competitive market with communication systems, right? Yeah. Um, so this is where as outbound gets bigger. There's going to be more types of segments and niches and ways that outbound applies to a company. And there are a lot of companies where, especially in like more transactional or hyper-competitive areas, you do need more tenure. You do need more experience because for him, he thought it would take. It took about three years to. Get the whole outbound team and program up and running, and you know to the point where he, they were really felt like it's producing. Mm-hmm. And it took it's taken like nine months to ramp a new SDR to be effective, because they do need a lot more market knowledge. They need more like longer term right. nurturing cycles because it, it's a lot of their companies are under contracts, and it's not they can't just switch out the contract. Mm-hmm. But so I think again, this really comes down to knowing your market, knowing your customers, and kind of thinking, hmm. Based on where we are marketing to, who we're marketing to, who we're selling to, can we stick to the classic outbound SDR mark, mark, uh, model? And again, I specifically use the term outbound SDR as opposed to the inbound SDRs right. because you should not be mixing those roles. Super Agree. common mistake. Right. So we kind of have the classic outbound SDR model with a junior SDR who has relatively, you know, may have a little bit of experience, maybe not, who goes up. Or should we kind of think about I'd say it's a less common model, but might become a little more common in some segments where we have a parallel career track where, again, we're hiring AEs and people with experience who uh, might be, get paid the same as the salespeople, mm-hmm. right? So the, the, it might be harder to get the, the, the meetings than it is to close them, or it's an equivalent challenge. And so we're taking the prestige out of the closing part of it by again paying the roles in similar ways and treating them similar as a parallel career track yeah um i think that's going to happen it's not going to be the default but it'll be for the right segments and companies who can you know, adapting it to their area it's going to happen more and more it's not going to be a whole everyone's going to change that type of model no no they need to have the right set the right market the right product they sell to to do that but yeah too often i've seen sdrs 
you know, let's say there's a bit of ageism when it comes to it, quite frankly, in the Valley, is, you know, flushing people with, with a bunch of experience who just want to be prospectors. And that's fine. Um, and yet, you know, they tend to be valued as they get older because the perception that they, you know, can't keep up with the pace, but, you know, in the right role, they don't need to have that. Yeah. And, you know, I think that uh, there's a lot of things like that going to roles as to, right, how do you keep outbound in- interesting to people? But, you know, I think that results are interesting. So whatever's going to get the best results for a company, um, you know, if, if a job, if people feel like they have good people to work with and they have ways to kind of learn, even if the day-to-day job can be boring, mm-hmm. they can stick to stick with that for two or three years right, or longer term than you used to. Um, and there's some people that are kind of career prospectors. It's not very common, but maybe that's because again, the prospectors tend to get paid less. Yeah. Career path doesn't exist. You know, we'll see. It's really hard. It's really hard to separate out. There's so much more like, um, prestige and compensation attached to salespeople and for good reason. So it's really hard to detach those and say, if, the prospecting job was paid exactly the same. It was an equivalent challenge and equivalent compensation to the sales job. How boring, you know, how, what would that look like in a company? So someone's probably done that. And, um, it'd be really interesting to see. So well, if, you, I mean, if was... you've done that at your company, reach out. Cause I'd love to hear more about how that's worked and how people culturally, how it just changes things. Sure. Well, I mean, I, I worked at one startup where, you know, truly was, a team sale, and it was a complex sale, complex enterprise sale, satellite communication systems. And, you know, we didn't pay commissions to, you know, to the sellers, to the closers. Um, yeah, they got stock and they had other compensation that, that came with it, but, you know, they were not bearing the risk solely. I mean, it was, it was took five, six people to work on the account and everybody's contribution was of equal value. So I think those those situations exist out there, and companies need to be willing to sort of break the rules uh, in order to put the right team yeah. together. Um, yeah. So one one question that comes up quite a bit that that for me when I look at the way some companies have implemented their inside sales model is that it seems to me they are accepting really low win rates as just sort of a fact of life, which speaks to sort of the quality lack of quality at the top of the funnel, and we're just going to play the sort of game of chance. And again, conversations with multiple CROs about what are you doing to improve your, your win rates uh, as a you know, faster, less expensive route to growth than just trying to invest in generating more leads at the top of funnel. I mean, and I come from a background, different background, admittedly, but I was you know, working for startups, selling complex enterprise stuff. And if we were trying to exist on a 20% win rate, we would have gone out of business. Yep. Okay. So now this is the great, let's do this exercise, which is sure. 20% of what, right? So from which part of the funnel to win? Of qualified opportunities. From, okay. 20% of qualified opportunities. Um, I think that's pretty, that's definitely typical for outbound. 20%. In today's environment. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good mention. And I mean, for as long as I was doing it, like 15 years, I think for outbound. I go back 44. So, yep. I know you got that on me now inbound. So there's referral, right? So the thing is like, uh, another idea that the predictable revenue book introduced and we expanded on in the, from impossible to inevitable book is mm-hmm. this idea of 
different types of leads, three types, seeds, nets, and right. spears. I remember that. And each type can have different book. yeah, metrics, win rates, and so on. So seeds, which would be word of mouth, they're going to have higher win rates, right? So that might be 33% or could even be 50% from qualified to close. Outbound, you're usually going to have 20%. Now, if you have a services company or a really uniquely challenging niche, it could be lower. There's always a variety. But like kind of product type businesses, 20% is pretty standard for outbound. And inbound leads, again, can vary because there's many types of inbound leads. So I would say that generally, if it was lower, if it's a product company, you know, a lot of it depends on the type of lead. Like if you're getting lots of uh, outboundy type leads, just whether because there's the whole range, right? If you generate a lot of leads from webinars, right? There's more nursery education. They're not really buying signals. Right? And outbound, you're going to have lower win rates just by the nature of the lead sources. If you're getting lots of referrals and you're going to have higher win rates. But um, the other thing is too, the way that you qualify, some companies are able to qualify, need to qualify a lot heavier at the beginning. Like if you're super enterprise or if you kind of know your market and some companies have to be a little bit more open because they can't tell. So there's a lot of right in there, but 20% to me doesn't sound that bad. It sounds pretty typical. Yeah. Uh, I think for my opinion is for most companies, that's not a sustainable path to growth because you're not giving your sellers enough time to work each of the accounts the way they should in order to increase the opportunity, the potential of closing them. Yeah. And so, I mean, especially especially when you have companies that have you know excessive pipeline coverage ratio requirements and so on, then people just don't have time. I mean, if you're meant to work a deal that's you know a relatively high value deal and and selling to an enterprise, and you've got a five x pipeline coverage requirement, you are only going to close twenty percent of your deals. Yeah. But but why not? You know, have a three x requirement and close with half of them. Yeah, I think. Look, I would agree that the better the more a company can kind of figure out what are the clues earlier that would better qualify or disqualify the prospect. You know, how do you only let things into the pipeline that are, have a great chance? So sometimes you don't know. So I do, I would rather have a three times, like fewer, going back to, I would rather sales, people get fewer, better meetings. Mm-hmm. Like, so A, I would 100% because the busier salespeople are, like I said, they just, most people, not just salespeople, really struggle with juggling lots of things, yeah. especially today. Right? And yeah. the fact is there's lots of technology tools, but now it's the point it's getting worse because there's too many kind of apps people have to log in to do things. Yeah. You're getting this stack overwhelm. Stack distraction, yeah. I have, to, I have to log into Outreach and Salesforce and Zoom Info and, you know, Lucia and all There's like at, total app overwhelm. So it's a never-ending kind of a battle for simplicity, right? The side of focus to go back to how do we, like what are the fewer kind of best types of customers? How do we better market to them? Once they come in, how do we kind of identify which ones should be passed to even inbound SDRs and then to salespeople? Mm-hmm. How do we keep out the riffraff when people aren't ready? So it's kind of an ongoing challenge, but I do think going back to, there's too much of a focus on big numbers. Mm-hmm in activities and leads and not as much of a focus on, are we getting the right leads? Are they kind of moving through the right steps? And we just, we want fewer, better meetings for salespeople. You don't want too many, you need 
uh, you can't have too few meetings for salespeople, but you can't have too many yeah, either. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Because then they get busy and they just, they, they drop stuff. Some stuff gets dropped. So what's the right number for people? And it's going to be lower for enterprise and higher for mid market and even higher for yeah. sort of small business transactional. So a question for you, sort of follow up on specialization, which, which this is a particular interest area of mine is, is okay. That's the key. You know, That's we're, the key. we're, we're doing that at the sales level, but we fundamentally haven't really changed how we manage how we manage sales in forever, um, I believe. And so, I take example if you look at the way uh, I'm a huge soccer fan, so a Liverpool fan. You're not too far from Liverpool these days. Yeah, nope. But you look at the, the average Premier League team and the way their coaching staff is organized. It's hyper specialized. Yeah, you got the first team coach, Jurgen Klopp. You got a, or he's the head coach, and you've got a, a coach who just for the the first team. You've got a three different performance coaches. You know, one for fitness performance, one for skills performance. One, you know, they got a coach for throw-ins. For goodness sakes, we don't seem to have, you know, the ability to shift our, like our models on sales. Is why don't we have specialized performance coaches and so on? Why are sales organizations I embracing think that's this? A brilliant idea. I would be totally behind that. I hadn't even thought about it that way, but yeah, you're exactly right. All right, we'll write, we'll write, we'll write the book on that one. Yeah. <laughs> now, but if, and if you're not big enough to, I don't know how many salespeople you'd have to have to kind of justify hiring those people. But um, one thing that we have written about, and this is in the mistakes book as well, is you can have people on your team who specialize. Like, if you say you have a team of six salespeople. Um, and you have a one manager, you know, that manager, you know, how do you, what do you do? Well, you can have uh, someone on the team is probably the best at calls and they can become like the call coach. Mm -hmm. You can have these kind of side jobs and ways to take some of the management responsibility and distribute that through the team in ways to actually give people on the team opportunities to do something different and prove they can add value and and practice specialized skills. Yeah. But um, now your, your point is, is right on. Yeah. That is, that is the way to go. I mean, I think there's a lot to be said around modeling the best performing teams in the world. If you really want to go that far, I hadn't, but because there's a lot of things they do that our sales teams, even the most successful ones, don't do. Yeah, there's, there's somehow this, this mythology built up around this, you know, the VP. And, yeah, you've sold consulting services for years. I've sold consulting services for years. Yeah, I, I pretty much ended up always having to sell to the CEO because VPs were so uh, anxious about having somebody come in that they might perceive as, you know, know something that they don't. And how I can't have that, right? I can't have somebody here that knows something that I don't. Yeah, I'm supposed to know it all. Right. right. And and which, is, which is impossible, impossible, right? You can't possibly know right. that. So, yeah, we have to reconceptualize this role, I think, if we really want to improve performance at the sales level. Because I think that You've seen the CSO insight stats that you know sales performance for reps is dropping year over year and quota attainment. It's like, well, it's because we never really focus on performance at the management level. And we have these people that are trying to be jack of all trades. And I just think just taking a, a cue from predictable revenue, if we specialize at the selling level, why aren't we specializing at the management level for sales? Yeah. Um, I think that's the way that people should go It's moving that way a little bit towards with sales ops, which has been, it's been mm-hmm. great to see that grow in terms mm-hmm. of specialists who are doing the tool configuration, Salesforce right. or CRM configuration. 
Um, obviously bigger companies, you have to have that, but you know, I think for smaller companies or even bigger ones, you know, it's, if you can't, if you don't have someone in house, you can do it. Like bring in a coach or consultant or some trainer from the outside. If you have someone in house, you can volunteer and be that specialist. If you're big enough to have people who internally, you can do that. But the, again, this world of overwhelm going back to that means mm -hmm. that there's kind of too many things going on. People can't stay on top of everything. So you have to have people who specialize again, in doing fewer things better. So they can get really, really good at that thing, mm -hmm. which might be again, like you say, calling or emailing or messaging or uh, technology configuration, like kind of UI design, like sales UI design or something. Time management is probably one of sales, our biggest hurdles for salespeople right. is just time management. They can get really, really good at that because it's hard. You just need time and space to really delve into those things to get really, really good. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. Go back to my my saying earlier is is you know, using this with a client is yeah. You know, if you want to be able to do more, <laughs> more meaning actually sell more is you have to do better first at what you're doing. Then you can do more. Mm -hmm. But we yeah, tend to we say, um, tend to skip that. We just go to more without saying we got to do better first. Yeah, there is a David Scott, the BC from Matrix right. Partners, um, had a great way of describing which is startups first they get product market fit and then they figure out their repeatable revenue model my mm -hmm. right, predictable revenue and then they scale and he says the biggest the most common problem are startups that skip the second step so they get product market fit and then they try to scale right and they don't realize or to slow down to say product market fit and then figure out how to make it repeatable and that will lead to scaling right so he said get better first and then that will lead to the growth yeah Got it. And honestly, a lot of that because a lot of that time, that mastery is just tedious, slow, and boring. Well, you you really you know, talked about it in your second book, the one you, you authored with Jason that we talked about the last time you were on the show, which was uh, you know learning to sell to people who aren't your friends, basically, right? Yep. Yeah, <laughs> and, your friends. Yeah, because we all get feedback from our friends because they're right. easy, but they, it's all biased feedback. Right. You got to sell outside your circle of friends, and once you do that, then you have that repeatable process that you can. Yeah. One, which is I always remember that as a great way to put it. So, well, Aaron, it's fantastic talking to you again. And you've got another book coming out soon. Uh, not officially yet. Okay. So, right. well, we had a we had a second edition of the From Impossible to Inevitable book come out. Right. Uh, easy to find it from impossible com, and I'm slowly working on a book. I'm tentatively tentatively calling Forcing Functions. Okay. Basically, and if you remember that chapter in the Impossible book on how to make success inevitable, because mm -hmm. you can't willpower doesn't scale. Right. Right. Willpower is not repeatable. Uh, you know, and everyone again, more overwhelm means more procrastination, confusion, paralysis. Even for anybody, I'm right there with everybody. So for me, forcing functions have been kind of my number one key to break through all that and create leaps at home with you know, from zero to nine kids and right. at work with a lot more. So think about slowly dipping my toes and turning that into a book someday. Okay. I would not guess not this year, I don't think, but we'll see. You never know what's happening. Yeah. Six yeah. kids at home, three more in Los Angeles. Yeah, you've got yeah. uh but uh, yeah, for now it's just this ebook on the outbound sales mistakes even smart leaders make. Good. So and that'd be through uh, predictablerevenue.com. All right, people check it out. So Aaron, thank you. We'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah, thanks very much. Always a pleasure. 